Hello, and welcome to the Yale Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. My name is Kevin Yan. I'm one of the PGY3 residents here in neurology, and I'm joined today by one of my personal favorite attendings, Dr. Fazio, who is a neuro-ophthalmologist. Longtime listeners may remember that he gave a wonderful talk about a year ago about monocular vision loss, focusing on the etiologies for monocular vision loss that are relevant to the neurologist. Today, he returns to finish that discussion with me. How are you doing, Dr. Fazio? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for joining. So I wanted to quickly review the thought process for monocular vision loss for our listeners. Last time, you emphasized that the important questions are where, what, why, and how, really in that order. Do you mind just giving us a quick reminder of what you mean by that? Thank you. So today we're going to talk about optic neuropathies, but um, as a review, we can start by how we assess vision loss in general. And uh, like any other neurologic problem, we always have to think about where the problem is first. In the case of vision loss, we can have problems, and I'm going to try to formulate this for at least starting with monocular vision loss, the problem can be in the eyeball or in the optic nerve. Now in the eyeball, we have certain structures, the tear film, the cornea, the anterior chamber, the lens, the vitreous, the retina, and the macula before going to the optic nerve. Now, once we get behind the optic nerve, we're starting to talk about the locations where binocular vision loss may occur, uh, starting with the optic chiasm, the optic tracts, the lateral geniculate nucleus, optic radiations, and then the primary visual cortex. When evaluating a patient with vision loss, monocular or binocular, it's important to be thinking about where the problem might be. And certain examination techniques may help us uh, in sorting that out. Um, Certain symptoms uh, or experiences described by the patients may be helpful in sorting that out as well. Um, Certainly, the presence or absence of a relative afferent pupillary defect becomes very important because that helps to narrow things down to problems in the retina, optic nerves or optic tract, and I say that very carefully, but relative afferent pupillary defects will only occur with asymmetric problems, and they're always or almost always only the case in pregeniculate problems. I'll hold there and I'll explain anything further if you'd like. Yeah, so I wanted to encourage our listeners to uh, reference the last episode that was done by Dr. Fizio. That was episode 32 of the Exam Prep Podcast, and you can find it, uh, I believe it came out on June 1st, 2021. Um, And Dr. Fizio went through a lot of the disease processes that affect a lot of these various different localizations. Before we talk a little more about optic nerves, I was wondering, Dr. Fazio, if you wouldn't mind reminding us about what exactly a relative afferent pupillary defect is and how pathophysiologically it manifests. It would be so helpful to have a diagram here, but if I might paint a picture with words. So light enters the eye, of course, through the pupil, which we understand is a space between the iris muscles. The light is then transmitted through the ocular media, uh, as I described earlier, and ultimately to the retina. In the retina, the light is detected by the photoreceptors, the rods and the cones, and then is transmitted from the outer to the inner retina, through, from the photoreceptors, the bipolar cells, and then to the retinal ganglion cells. Um, the retinal ganglion cells are the first order neuron 
for the optic nerve. All the retinal ganglion cells have axons which then coalesce to form the optic nerve. The light signal having been converted from a light to chemical and now to an electric signal is transmitted down the optic nerve and goes through the chiasm. Some of the light ends up in the hypothalamus aiding with the circadian rhythms. Some of the light goes through the optic chiasm, the tract, lateral geniculate nucleus, and terminates in the uh, occipital cortex. Uh, we're familiar with that and that's how we visualize images. The light that actually subserves the pupillary reflex does not go through the lateral geniculate nucleus, but rather skips out on that and goes to the dorsal midbrain to the pretectal nucleus. Now it gets a little complicated. So take for example, light going in through the right eye. 47% of those signals will be transmitted ipsilaterally through the right optic tract and 53% through the left optic tract. But signals from the right eye then end up on the both the right and left visual pathways, end up in both pretectal nuclei, where uh, they also split and go to both pretectal nuclei. The significance of that is that light that is shown to the right pupil will cause a consensual response. That is, it's going to cause uh, constriction of both pupils. Okay, and the constriction has to do with the efferent pathway. So the efferent pathway, starting from the pretectal nucleus, that signal is transmitted to the Edinger-Westphal nucleus, also in the midbrain, uh, where it, the signal will then travel through the fibers that, con that uh, make up the third cranial nerve. Those signals will move all the way from the midbrain along the third cranial nerve to the orbit where where the signals there will be a synapse in the ciliary ganglion the ciliary the short ciliary nerve sends those signals to the iris where uh, the effect is for constriction of the iris that's a lot to say without a picture uh, but with respect to the relative afferent pupillary defect specifically what ends up happening is if there is a problem in the right optic nerve, for example, or right retinal ganglion cells, because again, remember that the optic nerve is really just a continuation of the retinal ganglion cells. If there is an asymmetric problem in the right retina or right optic nerve, light presented to the right eye will not be transmitted as quickly or effectively, depending on the degree of injury. And so the pupil, the right pupil will not constrict quite as much. And when the signal is then quickly transmitted to the left eye, we will see a more robust constriction of that pupil. The light is then shown back to the affected right eye, and instead of a constriction, we'll see a dilation of the pupil because not all the light signals, the photons, are detected by the appropriate structures in the right eye. And that's what's called a relative afferent pupillary defect. This finding is only present when there is an asymmetric problem in one retinal ganglion cell or inner retina, two optic nerve, or three contralateral optic tract. That is to say, a problem in the left optic tract will cause a right relative afferent pupillary defect. The physiology for this is that 
there are more fibers from the right optic nerve axons in the left optic tract. That is 53% of the fibers end up in the left optic tract versus 47% in the right optic, tr in the right optic tract. Yeah, and because the presence of a relative afferent pupillary defect is such a sensitive finding for trying to localize an optic nerve or retina, which, as Dr. Vizio has said, is uh, just an, really an extension of the optic nerve lesion, I think that's a great segue for us to talk about the possible etiologies of an optic neuropathy. So let's say that we have a, a similar patient like we discussed in the last episode, someone coming in for monocular revision loss, and we find that they have a relative afferent pupillary defect in the affected eye. So that clues us in that this might be a problem in the retina, the optic nerve, or the optic tract. So what are the possible etiologies of, of, of those problems that might that you might think about, Dr. Fazio? Well, um, the relative afferent pupillary defect is definitely a very important clue. I'd like to exclude discussion about optic tract problems uh, just to simplify this discussion. Um, let's assume that this is a purely monocular problem. Um, so I'm seeing a person who described decreased vision in the right eye and they have a right relative afferent pupillary defect. I know that this could be a problem in the retina or the optic nerve. So we want to do a good eye examination, and, and by this I mean ophthalmoscopy, to see the retina and ensure that this is not a retinal detachment or there's no evidence of retinal ischemia or some other retinal disease. That's not always that easy to do, but we can say for the purpose of this discussion that we've done that and we didn't see any uh, retinal problems. Um, so then the problem must be the optic nerve. Um, the optic nerve is divided into four compartments or, or sections. The part of the optic nerve that we see when we look in the eye is called the optic nerve head or the optic disc. It's the most anterior portion of the optic nerve, it's the smallest portion. And so when we look in the eye, we might see that the optic nerve appears normal, is swollen, or is pale. Those are generally the three things that we might see. Now, there might be a character to each of these things, but it's either normal, swollen, or pale, and we would want to note the appearance of the optic nerve. Of course, to conclude that the optic nerve head, the optic disc, appears normal, one has to be familiar with um, the spectrum of normal appearances of the optic disc. Besides the intraocular optic nerve, also called the optic disc or optic nerve head, then Immediately posterior to that, we have the intraorbital optic nerve, which is the longest portion of the optic nerve, and that sits in the cone between all the extraocular muscles. Posterior to that, we have the intracanalicular optic nerve, which is the part of the optic nerve wherein the dura is attached uh, to the bony structures in the optic canal. Posterior to that, we have the intracranial portion of the optic nerve, sometimes called the prechiasmatic optic nerve because it's the part that's uh, immediately adjacent to the uh, chiasm. That's the part that is exposed to the cerebrospinal fluid. When we're concerned about an optic nerve problem and we did ophthalmoscopy, we can see whether the optic nerve head or the optic disc is swollen, normal, or pale, and that can give us a clue as to what some of the possible causes are. But if we, are, if we observe a normal optic nerve, uh, we must then conclude 
that the problem is in the posterior optic nerve. And uh, we now understand that the posterior optic nerve refers to any portion of the optic nerve that cannot be visualized on ophthalmoscopy. Yeah, so um, that's a great discussion about the localization, uh, Dr. Fizio. So just thinking about the possible etiologies of the presentation, you know, a lot of this is going to be dependent on the specific patient, their age, their medical history, their risk factors, their social history, family history, things like that. As a quick overview of the topics that we'll be talking about, I wanted to quickly go over the possible etiologies that we'd be thinking of right off the bat when we hear that someone has, for example, monocular vision loss with a relative afferent pupillary defect, normal retinal exam, and a high suspicion for localization to the optic nerve. Do you want to uh, quickly go over what you, what kinds of uh, big classes of diseases you would be worried about? Sure. If you're a neurology resident and you're practicing inpatient neurology, one of the first things that comes to mind when you're thinking about an optic nerve problem is inflammatory optic neuropathy, optic neuritis, which is often related to multiple sclerosis. A major clue that this is an inflammatory problem is that you have examination findings, as we discussed previously, that suggest the problems in the optic nerve. And the affected individual, the patient, describes pain. So painful vision loss with a relative afferent pupillary defect and normal appearance of the ocular fundus is highly suggestive, almost completely diagnostic, for inflammatory optic neuropathy, particularly when we're dealing with people who are younger. Now, of course, inflammatory optic neuropathies, optic neuritis, can be caused by multiple sclerosis, uh, that's, which is a demyelinating disease. Other demyelinating diseases we now understand uh, include neuromyelitis optica, uh, also sometimes called Devic's disease, and anti-MOG antibody disease, uh, MOG standing for myelin oligo dendroglycoprotein. Um, and we have serologic tests for both neuromyelitis optica and uh, anti-MOG antibody disease at this point. So painful vision loss with a relative afferent pupillary defect uh, is suggestive of uh, inflammatory optic neuropathy. Of course, there are other inflammatory optic neuropathies besides these. These are just the commonest that we might see. Uh, we might also have infectious causes of inflammation, such as Lyme, syphilis, uh, Bartonella. We might also have inflammation of the optic nerve that's related to vaccines, I should say, like hepatitis vaccine, flu vaccine. Um, these are all things that may respond to treatment with steroids, and that's why I put them all in that category. Adjacent to these types of uh, inflammatory optic neuropathies, we have conditions such as sarcoidosis and IgG4-related disease, which straddle the uh, categories of inflammatory or infiltrative. You might hear um, them put in either one of those categories. Again, I put them, I lump them together because this can be responsive to steroids as well. Uh, and, and MRI would show enhancement of one or more portions of the optic nerve. And there might be other features that uh, may be more specific for one condition versus the other. I, I would think that for inflammatory optic neuropathy, Pain is typical for multiple sclerosis. Some of the other conditions don't present with pain. Investigations would include, besides the clinical examination, MRI of the brain and orbits, which might show enhancement of the optic nerve more often than not. 
And I want to point out that MRI of the orbits is important in these cases because it includes not just thinner slices that allow uh, visualization of the structures within the orbit, but it also includes fat suppression, which actually helps to visualize the optic nerve well. I mean, besides the MRIs in investigating optic nerve problems, uh, if we're concerned about inflammation as the cause, uh, other investigations could include MRI of other parts of the neurologic system, like the uh, cervical and thoracic spine. A lumbar puncture could also be useful, uh, wherein we might test for oligoclonal bands or other tests that may be relevant to the clinical condition that we're concerned about. Yeah, that's great, Dr. Fazio. And I would mention that if this is something that we're suspecting, generally we're also getting our neuroimmunology colleagues involved in the assistance of treatment of these disorders. Another common thing, especially in the inpatient setting, if we're worried about acute onset vision loss uh, in one eye, we have to think about all the ischemic etiologies. So could you give us a quick summary of your thought process or the possible ischemic uh, processes that you're worried about? Ischemia of the optic nerve. Yes, indeed. So a person presents with vision loss and um, I think it might be useful to go over the blood supply to the optic nerve first if we're going to talk about ischemia. Most of us probably know that blood supply to the eye comes from the ophthalmic artery Many of us know that the ophthalmic artery is the first branch of the internal carotid artery. And this goes from common carotid artery, internal carotid artery, first branch being the ophthalmic artery, the other branches being the anterior choroidal arteries, or sorry, the other branches being the posterior communicating artery, anterior choroidal artery, anterior cerebral artery, and middle cerebral artery in that order. The ophthalmic artery gives off a branch called the central retinal artery, which goes through the optic nerve and goes into the eyeball uh, and divides into the superior and inferior branch retinal arteries. These, the central retinal artery and the branch retinal arteries do not supply any portion of the optic nerve. A separate branch of the ophthalmic artery is called the posterior ciliary artery. The posterior ciliary artery then divides into the long posterior ciliary artery and the short posterior ciliary artery. The long posterior ciliary artery supplies blood to the anterior segments of the eye, the iris and the like, whereas the short posterior ciliary artery supplies blood to the front of the optic nerve, again, the optic nerve head or optic disc. This is really very important because these arteries are incredibly small and are not susceptible to embolism. The posterior optic nerve is supplied by perforating arteries from the PL plexus. Again, very small arteries, which are not susceptible to embolism or can be susceptible to hypoperfusion or arteritis. So the typical patient that we see with ischemic optic neuropathy is at least spontaneous ischemic optic neuropathy, is a person who is over 50 years old who may or may not have the typical, what we call vascular risk factors, hypertension, uh, elevated cholesterol, diabetes, who presents with usually altitudinal vision loss. By altitude, we mean high or low. So they might have vision loss in the top part of their vision or the bottom part of their vision uh, in one eye. Upon examination, this person has a spectrum of uh, central vision loss ranging from 20-20 to much worse, and there is a, a relative afferent pupillary defect in the affected eye, and on ophthalmoscopy, what we can see is swelling of 
the optic nerve. Now, the swelling of that optic nerve is usually segmental. If the person had, if the person experienced vision loss in the inferior portion of their vision, we will usually see swelling of the superior optic disc. The swelling of that optic disc is usually characterized by a type of hyperemia. It's just more red, uh, what we call luxury perfusion. This is important um, because we will contrast that to what an arteritis might look like. And so when we see this clinical picture, we want to look in the other eye and look at what the other optic disc looks like. Typically, what we'll see is that the cup to disc ratio of the unaffected eye, what we call the fellow eye, is usually 0.3, that's 30% or less. So what we call a crowded disc or a disc at risk. And if all these things are the case, a diagnosis can be made of non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Ischemic optic neuropathy speaks for itself. Anterior means that there is optic nerve swelling. It's part of the definition uh, because that's the, it's affecting the anterior optic nerve. And then non-arteritic means that it is not related to arteritis. Uh, commonly, we're talking about giant cell arteritis here. Usually, in these cases, we're still going to get an ESR and CRP because these people are usually over 50 years old, and we want to make sure that this is not giant cell arteritis. So this is anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. In another patient, for example, we might see almost the same presentation, except that the optic nerve is swollen and it doesn't look hyperemic. It doesn't look red. It looks whitish. And in that case, we become incredibly concerned that this is anterior ischemic optic neuropathy that is due to arteritis, due to giant cell arteritis. The importance of this sort of a case is that, yes, we're going to get an ESR and CRP as well, but in such a case, I would be incredibly concerned about giant cell arteritis, and I would start steroids and get a temporal artery biopsy. Uh, immediately uh, when I see such a patient. There's a third sort of a case where you are suspicious for ischemic optic neuropathy, but you look in the eye and everything appears normal. That is, the retina appears normal, the optic nerve appears normal. In such a case, the concern is for posterior optic neuropathy. And I want to say that posterior optic neuropathies can be caused, as we mentioned earlier, by inflammation, compression of the optic nerve, ischemia, and a number of other entities, but those would be the top three. Imaging is of the utmost importance. Typically, we're getting, again, MRI of the brain and the orbits, which is going to help us sort out the issue of inflammation or compression. And when those things, when, when the imaging doesn't show inflammation or compression, the clinical picture is not consistent with inflammation or compression, we can think about ischemia to the posterior optic nerve. Ischemia to the posterior optic nerve can be caused also by arteritis, uh, but it can also be caused by, say, occlusion of the carotid, uh, which will cause hypoperfusion, or other kind of hypoperfusion syndromes, uh, such as arrhythmia. A common scenario where we see ischemia to the posterior optic nerve is in somebody who, for whatever reason, had decreased cardiac output. Um, or otherwise globalized or general hypoperfusion. What kind of conditions exist here? The obvious being cardiac arrest, prolonged seizure, or you might remind me of some other scenario where a person might have hypoperfusion for a prolonged period of time.
but usually it's in the context of cardiac arrest or perhaps even a cardiac procedure, uh, surgical procedure or something of that sort. So a person who had a cardiac arrest or a cardiac procedure and woke up and couldn't see, uh, we might start to become concerned about um, posterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Well, of course, there's a caveat there because if you had uh, a hypoperfusion syndrome and uh, if a person had a hypoperfusion syndrome and developed vision loss immediately thereafter, the problem could be due to ischemia of the occipital lobes. So this can very easily be distinguished from ischemia of the optic nerves by the pupillary responses. That is to say, ischemia of the occipital lobes does not cause an impairment of pupillary responses. The pupils remain very brisk. There's no uh, relative afferent pupillary defect. Whereas ischemia of the optic nerve, whether unilateral or bilateral, will cause diminished response to light. And so um, the pupillary responses remain very important in such a scenario. So how do you uh, typically manage these disorders, Dr. Vizio? Let's say someone came in and you thought that they were had a diagnosis of non-arteritic um, anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. What kinds of things would you tell them to do, to not do, and what kind of prognosis do you typically give your patients? That's a good question. I think the issue of non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy is a difficult one, not because it's a, diffi- it's a difficult diagnosis to make, but because there is, no, there is no known effective treatment. It becomes an important diagnosis really to exclude other possibilities like arteritis. But when we're sure that the diagnosis is non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, it's reassuring to the patient that it's A, not something else, We can see worsening of the optic disc swelling and uh, correlated visual function for two to three weeks after the onset, after which we might see a plateau in in visual function or mild improvement over subsequent weeks. There's a spectrum of severity of vision loss in this uh, particular condition, non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, but the reality is that we have no definite effective treatment and the vision, the visual function tends to stay stable at least after the first two or three weeks. Is there anything that you can tell them to do to try to protect vision in the other eye? So the associations with uh, non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy include, of course, older age, generally over age 50, a disc at risk, which is to say a disc, an optic nerve with a cup to disc ratio smaller than 30% in the other eye. Um, And then we talked about these vascular risk factors. More specifically, however, we found that obstructive sleep apnea and the use of PDE5 uh, drugs such as sildenafil or Viagra um, increases the risk for vision loss in these patients. So in, the, in all individuals, uh, we typically recommend being tested for sleep apnea. In select individuals, uh, we advise not using or not continuing uh, these uh, PDE5 drugs in the future. So if somebody was not already using one, we would advise them to not start. And if they were using it, we would advise them to not continue and seek other mechanisms for treating erectile dysfunction or pulmonary atrial hypertension, as the case may be. I, I do want to mention one more thing, though. 
there is a very closely related condition. We're not quite sure that it's the same, uh, but there's a condition of anterior optic neuropathy that looks like it's ischemia, uh, which has been observed in individuals who take amiodarone. And in an individual who has atrial fibrillation that needs to be treated, uh, if they experienced a condition that looks like NAION, we usually discuss with their cardiologist transitioning off amiodarone. All right, that was an excellent summary of ischemic optic neuropathies, Dr. Vizio. Um, I want to move on to, to something that you touched on already, but the compressive etiologies. And I want to um, mention that this is going to be particularly relevant to neurologists because a lot of the things that will cause compression of the optic nerve are fundamentally neurologic in, in, in nature. So what kind of compressive, um, compressive uh, uh, etiologies would you be worried about in, in someone who came in with an optic neuropathy? Well, there are fast or slow compressive problems. I like to think about it that way. Mm -hmm. So if a person presented with vision loss that just started a week or two ago, um, the, I would be concerned about something that, were, that was a, in my parlance, fast compression. And what would those things be? Well, something that can expand rapidly. Uh, things that can expand rapidly are usually fluid-filled. So what's fluid-filled? Well, an aneurysm is fluid-filled. We might have an aneurysm of, the, <coughs> of some segment of the ophthalmic artery, uh, the supraclinoid segment, for example. Um, we might have uh, a rapidly expanding pituitary, uh, like a pituitary apoplexy. We might have uh, a cystic lesion in the cella, like a uh, Rathke's cleft cyst or a craniopharyngioma. Um, so those are things that can cause rapid compression of the optic nerve. Most of the other things that will compress the optic nerve um, tend to be slow-growing. Things like meningiomas uh, of the sphenoid wing, the typical pituitary adenomas that uh, without an apoplexy, orbital masses, or something that might be uh, starting from the cavernous sinus and uh, infiltrating through the orbital apex. Um, those would all be things that could compress the optic nerve. I mean, there will always be, there'll always be an atypical scenario, but more often than not, if, we're, if we find an optic nerve compression, it will be a meningioma uh, of a something in the region or a uh, pituitary mass. Of course, we can have metastatic disease uh, that infiltrates the orbit uh, that will compress the optic nerve. Um, within the orbit, though, we can have what's called an optic nerve sheath meningioma, that is the dura surrounding the optic nerve that is actually the cause of compression. The symptoms that should clue us into an orbital compressive lesion would be what we call gaze-evoked amaurosis. Amaurosis being transient vision loss. Uh, and we're talking here about transient vision loss that is provoked by changes in eye movement. So we're not talking about eye pain here. We're talking about a person who looks to the left or the right and has very brief transient vision loss. And what's happening here is that something is compressing the blood supply to the optic nerve. And that can be an optic nerve sheath meningioma or some other orbital mass, typically a mass within the cone, an intraconal mass, uh, and various things can cause that. One clue that a compressive optic neuropathy is the result of an optic nerve sheath meningioma is the presence of an optociliary shunt vessel on the optic disc. 
So if we were evaluating a patient who described either transient vision loss or more sustained vision loss and we saw blood vessels along the front of the optic nerve, it's really hard to describe in words. Certainly these blood vessels are not commonly seen in normal optic nerves. If you saw blood vessels on the top of the optic nerve that just sort of have a wavy pattern, uh, you might consider this to be an optociliary shunt vessel. And those are often seen in chronically compressed optic nerves. And that should clue you in that this might be an optic nerve sheath meningioma. Um, this would be important because imaging of the orbit, like an MRI of the orbit, might show enhancement of the optic nerve sheath, what we call a tram track appearance because it's just affecting the optic nerve. And the differential for this radiologic appearance may include sarcoid. So certainly the presence of an optociliary shunt vessel uh, when we have this radiologic appearance should lead us in the direction that this is most likely an optic nerve sheath meningioma as opposed to sarcoidosis. So what kind of imaging studies do you typically order to, to work up compressive lesions? Well, ideally one might get an MRI of the brain and orbit. More pragmatically, <coughs> when I see these patients, I order a CT angiogram of the head. Um, case in point, just about two weeks ago, I saw a middle-aged woman who was referred to me for optic atrophy in the right eye, that is, the right optic nerve was pale. She, had, she described insidious vision loss in the right eye for at least six months, uh, but it appeared to have worsened over the last few weeks. She had seen an eye doctor who found decreased vision in the right eye with a pale right optic nerve, which I confirmed. I was very suspicious about a compressive optic neuropathy, and I could have ordered an MRI of the orbits because, again, this was only one eye, so I knew that this was not going to be post-chiasmal. Uh, but one, one thing I know, and this might be the experience of others listening to this talk, is that it's not often easy to get an MRI. Uh, it might be delayed for weeks, uh, particularly in the outpatient setting. And for a person who had decreased vision loss for several months, it seemed imprudent to send her to the emergency room. Um, because it wasn't a true emergency. So a CT angiogram of the head is what I requested. Knowing that a CT angiogram of the head will show me an enlarged pituitary, whether it was apoplectic or not, it would show me an aneurysm, and it would show an, a large orbital mass that was uh, able to compress the optic nerve. And that's exactly what we did. We were able to get a CT angiogram of the head within 24 hours, which in this particular case showed changes around the cella that, were, that raised suspicion for a uh, meningioma. Of course, then we were able to do what was appropriate in that case. So I think there's the ideal and there's the pragmatic approach. The ideal approach here would be MRI of the orbits with and without contrast but I would encourage our listeners to consider um, getting a CT angiogram of the head. Maybe the head and the neck, if you're not sure that this is going to be compressive, because a CT angiogram of the neck also would show you a carotid occlusion, uh, which could cause retinal or optic nerve ischemia. So I, I think you can get a lot more information out of a CT angiogram of the head and the neck than one would have previously thought. And it is much more accessible um, than an MRI. Of course, if the CT angiograms are non-diagnostic, um, you always have the option of getting an MRI, but at least 
more often than not, I think you'll get very useful information in that scenario. Now, I wouldn't do a CT angiogram of the head if I was evaluating a patient with painful vision loss with a relative afferent pupillary defect where I was concerned about an inflammatory condition. But if I was concerned about an ischemic or compressive condition, then I would start with that. And this is less relevant for monocular vision loss, but while we're on the topic, um, I was wondering if you might be able to quickly touch on conditions that are caused by increased intracranial pressure in general, whether that's idiopathic, whether that's due to a venous system deficiency, and how you would work those up. Okay. So we're discussing here the uh, entity of papilledema, Mm -hmm. swelling of the optic nerve. So I think I might want to start by saying that swelling of the optic nerve is not always due to raised intracranial pressure. Swelling of the optic nerve can be due to a number of causes. We previously just discussed that ischemia to the front of the optic nerve will cause swelling of the optic nerve. Inflammation can also cause swelling of the optic nerve as we've seen in neuromyelitis optica or anti-emoji antibody disease. Multiple sclerosis associated optic neuritis can cause swelling of the optic nerve, although that usually is very mild when it occurs. And um, more often than not, multiple sclerosis is causing inflammation of the posterior optic nerve. Other possible causes of swelling of the optic nerve include compression of the optic nerve, particularly when it's close to, when the compressive lesion is close to the optic nerve head, such as within the orbit. And we might also see swelling of the optic nerve in some retinal conditions, such as retinal ischemia, central retinal artery occlusion, central retinal venous occlusion. Um, we might see swelling of the optic nerve with some metabolic derangements, like with uh, drug-induced optic neuropathies, with Leber hereditary optic neuropathy, which is a mitochondrial optic neuropathy. And more often than not, I would say that we're seeing swelling of the optic nerve that is a pseudo-swelling. It's not truly swollen, but the appearance of the optic nerve is anomalous for uh, any number of reasons. But and that's why we call it pseudo-swelling. When we see swelling of the optic nerve, and it's due to raised intracranial pressure, then we use the terminology papilledema. Um, some features that will make us suspicious that this is raised, that, that a swollen optic nerve is the result of raised intracranial pressure are one, the central vision is normal. By central vision, I mean the visual acuity. 2020 is what we consider to be normal, or somewhere in that range. Secondly, the Peripheral vision, more often than not, is normal or near normal. That is to say, with uh, papilledema, we might see an enlarged blind spot when we do automated perimetry. But typically, um, we don't see, for example, uh, an altitudinal uh, visual field defect like we do with uh, anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. This patient may not have blurry vision. They may describe transient loss of vision, what we call transient visual obscurations, which typically will then occur when the intracranial pressure is transiently elevated, such as when they lie down, when they uh, bend their head down to pick up something or put their shoes on, or will occur when there's transient decrease of intracranial circulation, for example, when they go from lying down to standing up. 
okay? These transient visual obscurations can last just a few seconds, but some people have reported them lasting up to a minute. These people more often than not have headache, but not always. Sometimes papilledema is discovered incidentally. I think those are some good clues that the that optic nerve swelling that we're seeing is uh, due to raised intracranial pressure and not something else. I think I should also add that most often papilledema is bilateral. There will be rare cases, and I, I just have to note that they are rare, uh, where you have unilateral papilledema, that is to say, raised intracranial pressure causing optic nerve swelling in only one eye. Another way of saying that is if we see optic nerve swelling in only one eye, we must be concerned that it is something else besides papilledema. And um, in that case, uh, if, if we do ultimately determine that it's papilledema, we'll know that that's an exception. So when we have raised intracranial pressure and the optic nerves are swollen, we typically see normal visual acuities, very mild or no visual field defects. This person might have transient visual obscurations. And it all depends on the degree to which the optic nerve is swollen. Causes of raised intracranial pressure can include too much CSF production, too little CSF reabsorption, or something within the cranial space that shouldn't be there, such as a mass. A mass can easily be detected on imaging, and so there's probably no need to talk about that further. CSF can be overproduced if a person has a choroid plexus papilloma, in which case they might have enlarged ventricles. Causes of decreased CSF reabsorption uh, will include a aqueductal stenosis, so which will then impair CSF flow from the third to the fourth ventricle. In that case, um, there is no obvious mass, but we might see enlargement of the third and the lateral ventricles with a normal size of the fourth ventricle. So that will be a clue that this is aqueductal stenosis. That would be a good case for your neurosurgeon. They might treat this with uh, endoscopic third ventriculostomy or something else. Um, the technology will improve, I'm sure. A mass in the posterior fossa, such as the cerebellum, can cause effacement or narrowing of the fourth ventricle, also causing an obstructive hydrocephalus. A Chiari malformation with herniation of the cerebellar tonsils can actually narrow the egress of CSF from the fourth ventricle into the um, subarachnoid space. And I think that can be that can be easily missed. Chiari malformations are very tricky because they can actually change in morphology over time but I usually look very closely to the image in myself uh, when I see patients with uh, papilledema. Now, other interesting things, uh, vascular abnormalities that can cause decreased reabsorption of CSF. The most dangerous one is probably a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which can occur in the sagittal, transverse, sigmoid, sinus, or internal jugular vein. This kind of a thrombosis will prevent adequate reabsorption of CSF, cause raised intracranial pressure, and papilledema. Interestingly, headache and papilledema may be the only manifestation of this kind of a condition. That is to say, a person presenting with headache and optic nerve swelling may not have idiopathic raised intracranial pressure, but might have a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. And this is the reason why these patients, in addition to having 
perhaps an MRI of the brain and orbit should also have some kind of venogram, an MR venogram or a CT venogram, um, because they may not have any other examination findings or symptoms that would clue you in um, that this was the ultimate diagnosis. Additionally, vascular malformations such as a dural arteriovenous fistula intracranially uh, can cause papilledema because then the venous pressures become very elevated and impairs adequate resorption of CSF. This will be diagnosed if one actually does an MR venogram on these types of patients, so it's something that is important not to miss. I'm reminded of a case I saw very recently of a middle-aged man, and this is a clue, who had started to experience pulse synchronous tinnitus. That is to say he experienced a whooshing in his right ear, uh, was evaluated by an ENT who accurately suspected a venous malformation, uh, and he was found, in fact, to have a dural arterial venous fistula. Unfortunately, uh, ophthalmoscopy wasn't performed, and uh, only several weeks later, he started to experience transient visual obscurations uh, that led to the discovery, the discovery of severe papilledema in both eyes. Um, so this provides a clue as to, it, it all depends who the patient sees first. Uh, if the patient's main concern is headache, they end up with a neurologist more often than not. If their main concern is vision issues, they end up with some kind of eye care professional and they might experience hearing symptoms, pulse synchronous tinnitus that leads them to an ENT. So in summary, um, the workup for papilledema should include MRI of the brain and orbits, because once in a while we'll be surprised about what we find, and an MR venogram of the head. A CT venogram of the head is also acceptable and oftentimes adequate in these cases. Yeah, and uh, just to go on what Dr. Fizaya was saying previously about ischemic conditions and CT angiograms being more accessible, oftentimes if you're seeing these patients in the outpatient setting, a CT venogram is also going to be much more accessible than an MRI of the brain orbits and an MR venogram. Has it also been your experience, Dr. Vizio? Yes, in fact, I, I think I primarily order CT venograms of the head now when I see patients with papilledema, particularly when suspicious that this is idiopathic intracranial hypertension. The reason is just as we've discussed, it's a lot more accessible and we can always get the MRIs. It's not to say we don't want the MRIs. It's to say that I, I want to be reassured uh, within 48 or 72 hours that I'm not dealing with a venous malformation or a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. A CT venogram of the head is going to show me a large intracranial mass that's causing obstructive hydrocephalus. It's going to show me a cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. It's going to show me most venous malformations or most arterial uh, venous malformations that can cause this type of a problem. So I think that the most likely dangerous things can be very quickly assessed by a CT venogram. And we do follow that up with an MRI of the brain and orbits with and without contrast, uh, because once in a blue moon, we will find some meningeal thickening due to sarcoid or Wegener's granulomatosis with polyangiitis or something else, IgG4 disease. Once in a great while, we'll find some rare cause. But I think the most immediate things can be assessed adequately by a CT venogram. All right. Excellent. For, uh, thank you so much for that uh, discussion about papilledema. Um, now I just wanted to move on to the next cause of optic neuropathies. Granted, this is less commonly responsible for monocular 
symptoms, but I think it is important to touch on the mitochondrial etiologies of optic neuropathies, and we can separate these into the acquired or metabolic etiologies and the hereditary ones. Yeah, it's worth talking about these, and um, some of these are currently treatable and others are in trials for uh, adequate treatment. So let's see. The optic nerve are axons of the retinal ganglion cells, and these axons require energy, as, uh, all, as all our nerves do. So when we start to think about causes of vision loss uh, that are not necessarily acute, uh, we might start to consider toxins, like medications. We might consider nutritional deficiencies, and then we might consider genetic or uh, hereditary causes. Optic nerves need energy. Energy comes from the mitochondria, and mitochondrial dysfunction will or can cause uh, optic nerve problems. Most of these problems will be bilateral, and most of them will be insidious. Let's start with autosomal dominant optic atrophy. Autosomal dominant optic atrophy is exactly what it sounds like, and in this particular case, we have mitochondrial dysfunction that is caused because there is an abnormality of a nuclear gene. So that is, a nuclear gene is not functioning properly, it's not making a product that the mitochondria need, and this is manifesting as vision loss, usually in both eyes usually insidious or slowly progressive. And when this individual is examined, uh, what we find is decreased central vision in both eyes, and the severity of the vision loss in these individuals varies. Ophthalmoscopy will show usually a normal retina, but what we see is atrophy or pallor of the temporal optic nerve. The temporal optic nerve is the part that's closer to the ear or to the temple. And that, again, this is usually bilateral. In most of these individuals, the remainder of the ophthalmic and neurologic examination is normal. So that's autosomal dominant optic atrophy. There are a couple of, I should say that there are numerous genetic mutations that can occur uh, that lead to this type of representation. Uh, for autosomal dominant optic atrophy, we're talking about the OPA1 and OPA3 genes. There's another very similar condition called Wolfram syndrome, WFS, uh, which can manifest with not only optic atrophy and vision loss, but also with diabetes insipidus and diabetes uh, mellitus, and there, there are others. Now we come to perhaps a more commonly encountered condition, which is vision loss due to something like vitamin B12 deficiency. People who have vitamin B12 deficiency, we were taught in medical school that it's usually it's a disease of alcoholics, but we find in clinical practice that it is really a disease of malnutrition, who is malnourished, people with intestinal disease, people with intractable vomiting, uh, people with cancer. So I would like us to expand our mind about who we're going to be concerned about uh, vitamin B12 deficiency. In the neuroophthalmology practice, uh, what this looks like is I examine somebody who has uh, insidious vision loss in both eyes. I see pallor of the temporal optic nerves, and um, it's something that comes to mind. We'll check the B12. 
um, we find that we can have B12 deficiency induced optic neuropathy when the vitamin B12 level is lower than 300. So a normal range is like 180 to 800, but we find some neurologic symptoms when it's in the low normal range. And this is very important because this doesn't come up as a red flag in your computer system. It's still within the normal range, but it's low normal. And um, we've had patients experience a significant improvement of vision with parenteral uh, repletion of B12 that is usually intramuscular. Why am I talking about these two things side by side? One is autosomal dominant optic atrophy for which a genetic mutation has been identified. And one is vitamin B12 deficiency, which appears to be a very different condition. Well, what we know is that vitamin B12 is a cofactor in one of the complexes in the electron transport chain, I believe it's uh, complex two. And without this cofactor, then you have disruption of the normal function within the mitochondria, and voila, you have mitochondrial disease. So it's important to think about the pathophysiology of, uh, of some of these things. Similarly, we then have some toxic optic neuropathies things like ethambutol causing optic neuropathy, which is again interfering in this mitochondrial process and causing a similar type of vision loss. Typically, these individuals uh, will experience improvement of vision when the offending drug is caused. Besides ethambutol, other drugs that are known to cause optic neuropathies, on two occasions, we've seen patients uh, whose optic neuropathies were the result of using disulfuram antibiotics. So we have ethambutol, linazolid, isoniazid, disulfuram, and I'm sure if I thought about it, I would think about other drugs uh, that are known to cause optic neuropathies as well. In many of these cases, the mechanism of injury to the optic nerve is mitochondrial dysfunction. And so that's why I lump those things together because it's it's helpful to think about the pathophysiology, uh, how these things cause vision loss. There is a condition that's caused by a mutation in the mitochondrial DNA itself, and that's Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy. This is slightly different in presentation from the others that I just mentioned because it often presents with unilateral vision loss as opposed to insidious bilateral vision loss. So in most cases of Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy, the individual experiences sudden vision loss in one eye, for which, of course, the differential diagnosis includes inflammatory optic neuropathy, ischemic optic neuropathy, compressive optic neuropathy. Making this a little bit more complicated, the optic nerve may appear mildly swollen with hyperemia. And so if one is not thinking um, very carefully about this, um, that individual may end up being diagnosed as having one of these other conditions. The problem with Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy is a mutation in the mitochondrial DNA. As of today, there is no definite effective treatment for this, although many trials are underway. Many times in these individuals, they may then experience vision loss in the other eye within 12 months. If I was seeing such a patient today with vision loss in only one eye, I think I would be compelled to recommend an antioxidant called idebenone, I-D-E-B-E-N-O-N-E, which has shown some promise in um, decreasing the likelihood of vision loss or the severity of vision loss in the other eye should that occur. Um, Idebenone is essentially, as I mentioned, an antioxidant along the spectrum of coenzyme Q10, uh, but it has uh, presumably a lot more antioxidant 
properties uh, than coenzyme Q10. Trials for treatment of leprous hereditary optic neuropathy include essentially um, gene replacement, uh, intravitreal injection of uh, the missing uh, or dysfunctional gene. Um, and we're hopeful that at some point in the near future, one of these trials will be will show uh, positive results. All right, and that was an excellent summary of all of the mitochondrial, either acquired or hereditary etiologies, Dr. Vizio. So I wanted to quickly recap everything for our listeners. Essentially, we covered a lot of the different causes of vision loss, starting off with the monocular etiologies that we'd have to be worried about, including the acute ischemic, inflammatory, or maybe compressive etiologies. And we also touched upon a lot of the things that would cause not just monocular, but also binocular vision loss, including papilledema from elevated intracranial pressure, as well as the mitochondrial etiologies. I hope that our talk today will be helpful in our listeners' thinking about the pathophysiology of vision loss, the vision pathway, how to localize the neurologic deficit, and what kind of testing and treatment to pursue. I want to thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Fizayo. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get Dr. Fizayo to talk more about neuroophthalmology in the future. And thank you for listening to the Yale Neurology Exam Prep Podcast.